Welcome to The District, a podcast by The Spectator World about politics and culture. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by my co-host, Amber Athey. And we're also joined today by Josh Hammer. Josh is the opinion editor at Newsweek and a member of the Texas Bar. And he's going to be talking with us today about a very important story that happened yesterday. And that was uh, the major case before the Supreme Court on which Roe v. Wade appears to be on trial. Uh, The hearings for that case happened yesterday, the oral arguments, I should say. Uh, It was very interesting, and it had both pro-lifers and pro-choicers alike uh, sitting on the edges of their seats, because this is probably the most uh, compelling challenge to Roe v. Wade in a good 30 years. It is a very, very big moment for the abortion issue. Uh, and and Josh, I want to start with you. What did you make, just generally speaking, of what you saw from these arguments yesterday? Yes, yeah, so thanks so much for having me, guys. So I, I listened to the entirety of your arguments. I, li- I listened to it from second one until it was over here. It really could not have gone any better. I mean, from a pro-life perspective, um, you know, as someone who founded his law students for life chapter, has marched in Chicago in sub-zero temperatures for life, who has spoken to many law schools on this issue and has very strong opinions on both the constitutional law and kind of the substantive issue of abortion itself. I, I really thought it could not have gone on any better. I mean, Justice Kavanaugh in particular, you know, who is at this point really kind of, I think, viewed as one of the swing justices on both this issue and kind of just in general, he he really seems to have accepted hook, line, and sinker that overturning Roe and returning the issue to the states is kind of the middle ground neutral position. And that's that's remarkable. I mean, for years and years, kind of the left wing media, you know, echo chamber ecosystem has tried to kind of gaslight conservatives and right of center people into thinking that overturning Roe is this big, scary thing. But Kavanaugh seems to have prudently and properly accepted. He's intuited that overturning Roe and kicking it back to the states is, by definition, a neutral kind of middle ground position. My, my personal preference, obviously, is that abortion be outlawed in America in its entirety. But um, if Kavanaugh is even thinking that and, you know, the, the chief justice was kind of searching for something a little middle groundy and really kind of the advocates for the other side were just not having it. They weren't playing ball. So I, 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 I'm very optimistic, honestly, after what I heard. And Josh, let's break that down a little bit further, because one of the unfortunate uh, things about getting Roe, striking it down, is that you have to treat justices as jurors, pardon me, jurists as as legislators. And that's a very difficult thing to do because they don't always behave that way or go the way that you want. And going into this case, like you said, uh, Brett Kavanaugh was largely considered a swing justice. Uh, can you explain to us why that was and and why because, yeah, right. I mean, yesterday he was talking about how, well, we're not going to ban abortion here on the Supreme Court, but that doesn't mean we necessarily have to uphold Roe either, kind of carving out this center path that maybe was a bit of a stretch, maybe didn't quite exist, uh, but certainly encouraging that I think he was taking it in that direction. Uh, why was Kavanaugh a swing vote and, and why was that so encouraging to hear that? Right. So for court watchers, I mean, you really do have to go kind of justice by justice, as you accurately note here. And you know, it, it, it's tragic, but the only justice of the nine of the on the current court who has been on record in a Supreme Court opinion calling for Roe to be overturned is Clarence Thomas. Um, Sam Alito has actually not even done that. I mean, to be clear, no one doubts that when it's directly teed up as it is here, that he would rule the, the correct way. But Clarence Thomas is literally the only one who has actually written going back as far as Planned Parenthood versus Casey itself in 1992 that Roe versus Wade is wrong and should be overturned. So you do have to kind of look at kind of the core and structure. There are obviously three solid liberals. That's Justices Breyer, 
Kagan and Sotomayor, and you know, so Justice Sotomayor obviously was a disaster yesterday. We, we can talk about that if you want to. Um, and then obviously you have you, you have Justice Thomas on kind of the quote unquote far right. Justice Alito is very close to him. Justice Gorsuch is, you know, he has, he has these idiosyncratic libertarian tendencies, but he seems to be closely aligned with Justice Thomas on the uh, doctrine of stare decisis of precedence. So a lot of people don't really doubt, and I personally don't doubt that he would rule with Clarence Thomas and overturning Roe. So it does kind of come down to those justices in the middle. Chief Justice Roberts, of course, has been well-documented that he has been kind of all over the map, to put it mildly, over the past decade or so. And Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh, frankly, have not gone off to the start out of the gate that a lot of us kind of hoped for them. They just haven't. I mean, you can kind of go issue by issue. Um, they just really haven't been as strong. And there are a lot of reasons for that, perhaps. Justice Kavanaugh in particular, by the way, I mean, I, I kind of hate to even go there, but given his kind of unique difficulties of his confirmation hearing, obviously, with the Christine Blasey Ford and all of that, and the fact that he uh, Kavanaugh has kind of gone above, he's gone above and beyond, he's gone out of his way to hire, like, all female law clerks and chambers. So there's particular kind of non-legal issues lurking in the background with him when it comes to the issue of abortion, perhaps um, uniquely. So he definitely was considered a swing justice. And, um, uh, you know, I, I feel pretty good, honestly, about where he is right now after what I heard. Um, justice Thomas was notably arguing yesterday, or at least having um, the detractors to the Mississippi abortion law, indicate exactly which constitutional right abortion falls under. So really getting to the basics of the pro-abortion argument. And can you sort of elaborate for us what it is about this specific Mississippi law, which bans um, abortions after 15 weeks that sets up that framework to allow him to do that, to allow Roe v. Wade to become the issue. Sure. So, so, so prior to Roe v. Wade in 1973, abortion was an issue for the states. Um, the states could basically do with it what they want. Um, the traditional kind of constitutional law term that you would use is like is rational basis review. If, if, if a state legislature has a rational basis to uphold a law, and you know. Before Roe versus Wade, obviously, protecting unborn fetal life would, of course, pass muster quite easily under that. So Roe versus Wade in 1973 establishes the notion of, of a quote unquote constitutional right to abortion. And, you know, it's done in kind of famously obscure fashion. You know, um, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it wasn't necessarily the greatest opinion ever written. John Hart Eli, the Harvard Law School professor who himself supported abortion rights, famously said that Roe versus Wade um, gives no semblance of pretending to be constitutional law. They kind of divine it out of the so-called right to privacy that emerged from the Griswold versus Connecticut case in 1965, which itself they found in the quote-unquote penumbras from the emanations. It, it, it's all fabricated, okay? This is like you don't have to you don't have to have a law degree or be bar in a state to realize that this is all just straight up um, non-textual philosophizing from the bench and, and and the wrong sort of philosophizing, I might add, obviously, not done with any kind of semblance of kind of, um, you know, transcendental order, eternal truth, morality, any of that. But hold, I'll cabin all that aside. So Planned Parenthood versus Casey comes in um, 19 years after Roe in 1992. And they famously, you know, this is obviously a huge disappointment for pro-lifers itself. I mean, Republicans had a 6-3 majority on the court in 92, much like they have today. And even one of the three Democratic nominees on the court in 92, Byron White, was actually one of the two dissenters in Roe. So, you know, this is kind of around the time that those of us on this podcast were young if we were born at all. And like back at that time, that was considered a huge disappointment for pro-lifers. But what Casey famously did was it, it upheld the crux. It upheld the basic holding of a constitutional right to abortion in Roe 
it just reformulated it. It basically said that the trimester framework that Roe had established no longer made sense. And they instead said that what you can't do is you can't you can't put an undue burden on a woman's quote unquote right to abort. And the court repeatedly in this very murky, not very well written opinion ties the undue burden to the notion of viability. So what it effectively amounts to is that before fetal viability, you cannot, you can't ban abortion. Now, the reason that the Mississippi statute directly tees up this question is because it's a 15 week gestational ban. And, you know, viability is famously a moving target. It is, of course, dependent on exogenous factors like the current state of medical science and embryology and all of that. But no one doubts that a 15 week unborn child cannot survive outside the womb given the current state of medical science. Therefore, Casey is directly on the chopping block and by extension, so is Roe. Josh, let's talk about that viability issue for a minute here, because one thing that I've always found remarkable in looking this up is that you can find some sources that will say, you know, at the time of Roe v. Wade, viability was about 28 weeks. Uh, Others will say now it's 23 weeks, it's 20 weeks, it's 24 weeks. It really is just completely blurred. I mean, the the news reporting on this is actually very bad and that nobody can seem to figure out what the the target is, as as you put it. John Roberts seemed to try to tackle this yesterday. He said, maybe the way to go here is to establish what the new line of viability would be and therefore update Roe and Casey, uh, clear up some of that confusion. Do, do you think the court could go that way? And why is that not enough? So I, I sigh there because I do think the court could go that way. There's there's four ways that this can go. Okay, I, I, I was speaking a couple months ago to... Um, Notre Dame Right to Life chapter, I was in South Bend, and they kind of laid out the four possibilities from my perspective as to how I think this case can go. The worst case scenario is kind of the, the, the black pill scenario, where the Mississippi statute is just simply nullified. That's obviously a disaster. I, I do not think that's going to happen, for its worth. I, I think the court will, will find some way to uphold the statute. So then the final three categories are, the first category is kind of, well, there's two, there's two middle ground categories. One, the court could say, it's kind of what Chief Justice Roberts is getting at here, is that the undue burden standard, given the current state of embryology, given kind of Justice Barrett's question oral argument about kind of, um, you know, increased adoption access and, and, and all that, given all that, a 15-week ban simply is not an undue burden. Therefore, Casey still stands. The other middle ground possibility is they could overtly modify Casey. They could say, um, we are going to throw out this undue burden viability language and put in place some sort of other, uh, it it would literally just be arbitrary, some sort of other arbitrary metric like 12 weeks or when when a fingernail is seen or brainwave, something completely morally arbitrary. So those are kind of the two middle ground options. Then obviously the best case scenario, of course, is like straight up clean overruling of all this misbegotten nonsense. But um, look, I mean, I do think that it's a distinct possibility that they could ultimately get kind of a narrow, controlling middle ground opinion here. That's clearly what Chief Justice Roberts wants. So the question then is, do Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett, really especially Justice Kavanaugh, I think, have the courage of their convictions to actually go the whole way here and join with Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch um, to kind of just get rid of this in its entirety? Then the question becomes for the chief, does he then try to join because it would be, quote unquote, more legitimate for a 6-3 overruling than kind of a, you know, narrower 5-4 ruling. But the chief is kind of a strong political actor here. This chief, you know, by definition, he's the chief justice. I'm sure he has um, gone above and beyond to establish relationships with all the junior justice. It, he, he will probably lobby really hard, if I had to bet, between kind of conference, which will happen this Friday, 
And when the opinion is written, he's going to lobby really hard to try and get, I think, Kavanaugh and or Barrett to his side to write kind of a narrower, controlling opinion. So I do ultimately, um, I hope I'm wrong here. I hope we get a clean overruling of Roe. But we've just been we've been let down so many times before that I just I, I just can't go in there and predict anything of that nature. So I do predict a narrower ruling, whether it's a three 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 split or some sort of like four two three split. But that that is ultimately my prediction. What you basically said, Matt. Yeah, that's so cynical. Unfortunately, I think I probably agree with you. Uh, you mentioned the time that there's going to be between uh, the arguments, which were yesterday, and the ruling, which won't come down until the spring. Can you give us a sense of what the justices do? In that time, you know, what they're going to go through, uh, how Roberts might go about his campaign of trying to woo over Barrett and Kavanaugh. What is all that going to look like? Sure. So, I mean, I should, I should give the caveat that I have, I have not clerked on the U.S. Supreme Court. I did clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. But, you know, I have a bunch of friends who have clerked on the court. And I think I have a decent sense as to how this goes. So I, I, I was texting just after all argument with a dear friend of mine who clerked for a very conservative Supreme Court justice. And she said to me that she feels very confident after what she heard, that there are going to be five votes at the conference on Friday to just straight up overturn Roe. Again, there were five votes after NFIB versus Sebelius to hold the mandate unconstitutional, right, and not rewrite as a tax. So we, 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 have, we have been here before. We have seen how this goes. So look, the way it works, basically, it, it's, it's all kind of informal channels. I mean, like, there's obviously lots of kind of um, uh, the justices are fairly collegial, um, it, despite kind of the public perception of the court as being kind of this like vitriolic institution. We all kind of remember, obviously, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg kind of go into the opera together. These people, even though like they strongly and staunchly disagree on constitutional law and kind of political morality in general, Oftentimes, then they are friends. So it really could be something as informal as kind of a, as a weekly lunch talk or the law clerks are talking to one another where the justices themselves are hanging out. Or it could be slightly more formal, of course, where they're sending emails. And, you know, I saw this, of course, when, when I clerked on the Fifth Circuit, the, ju- the judges, the justices are always kind of emailing each other to kind of ask for like what they think on a, on a, on a certain issue. They're circulating notes. Then ultimately, they're circulating draft opinions, of course. And when you circulate draft opinion, you might kind of want to ask for input from a different justice as to how the opinion could be improved or made more sensitive or less hardline. So there's all sorts of channels, mainly just informal at this point, at this juncture, by which kind of a Justice Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh could be moved to the chief justice's position. And the chief justice clearly does want to have some sort of like middle ground opinion here. Um, Again, I am cynical enough, for better or for worse, that I think that he probably will be successful in in, in peeling off one of them. But I I, I hope I'm wrong. Now, to clarify here, that would still be good, okay? Like, uphold Mississippi statute obviously is a partial victory. It is not the victory that the conservative legal movement needs at this juncture. It is not the victory that we should have. It's not the victory that we should expect, but it would still be, it would still be an incremental victory for sure. Yeah, I'm pretty cynical too, unfortunately. And I actually think I know which friend you're talking about. I believe I may have interviewed her on the radio this morning, but I will say her optimism was very contagious and I appreciated it a lot. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this really, I think, bad faith argument that emerged yesterday, which is that the perception of the court would be damaged if they were to overturn this precedent of Roe v. Wade, the idea that that somehow is a challenge to the court's uh, basic integrity. Yeah, it really kind of just boggles the mind, doesn't it here? I mean, doesn't this kind of a nakedly open, out in the open talk about whether overturning a precedent would question the court's 
political or institutional legitimacy. Doesn't that talk itself damage the institutional legitimacy? That's kind of the paradox. That's kind of the irony that I've never understood here. Why are we openly discussing this as if it's a factor that the justices ought to consider in the first place? I mean, look, the last time I checked, the the oath of office, which um, members of all three branches take at, at both the federal and the state level, the executive, legislative, and judicial branch, they all take a, a, a very similar, not quite verbatim, but very similar oath of office to uphold this constitution. They're not there to uphold various kind of political reactions or, or institutional integrity matters. That No, all of this is, is terrible. And it obviously is telling that Justices Breyer and Sotomayor in particular, that their lines of questioning did talk about the perceived institutional legitimacy because they know that when it gets down to brass tacks on the actual substantive constitutional law doctrines there, that it's simply not on their side. Again, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the famous ACLU lawyer, trailblazing feminist, vociferous pro- proponents of abortion rights, she famously said that the, like, that the grounding for Roe versus Wade was not super solid. Like this, It's really not a difficult question as a matter of, of bread and butter constitutional law. So it's very telling that they had to go to that there. But again, the paradox is that the fact that we keep on talking about this and the chief justice himself has played into this so badly over the past 10 years. He, he transparently cares about how the court is received here or perceived, excuse me. But the more that we just talk about it, I think the worse the integrity of the court actually becomes. Just I, They really just need to shut up and stop talking about it and mm-hmm. stick to the damn text in front of them. Josh, I think to be involved in the pro-life movement, as you have been and as I have been, is to be cynical naturally. Because, I mean, to call this herding cats is like an insult to cats, right? It's so difficult to keep track of. And you really do end up where, like, you're thinking about it from, like, the bottom of a whiskey bottle. And you're like, I really only trust two of these bastards. You know, I I only, at the end of the day, we may only get Thomas and Alito to go the way that we want. I don't think it's going to be that few. But that, that thought does come up. Um, I, I'm curious to get back into the justices for a second. Uh, I have trust issues with Neil Gorsuch right now, and that comes after the, the Bostock decision. And I know that you've been critical of Gorsuch in the past. Um, I, I think he gets a lot right, but but that decision is a sticking point. Uh, I suppose it shows that he's willing to ignore stare decisis and make these broad sweeping uh, statements from the bench, which might be good if you're trying to overturn Roe. Uh, but it does suggest that he's a bit of a social liberal as well, which I suppose would be less amenable to that. Uh, why are you confident that we're going to get Gorsuch uh, to go the right way? Well, man, I mean, um, it's, a, it's a fabulous question. Look, I I don't count anyone as like a rock solid beyond the shadow of a vote here, beyond even Clarence Thomas. I mean, even Sam Alito, who I think is a fabulous justice. Sam Alito did not join Justice Thomas's separate writing in the whole women's health versus Hellerstedt case in 2016 or in the June medical case in 2020. He has had multiple opportunities now to join Justice Thomas and overtly join him in calling for Roe in case to be ordered. He has not done that. Now, again, in, 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 a, in a Alito-specific case, I do think it's because he does take a very kind of narrow incremental view of the judicial role. And unless the question is directly teed up for his review, he doesn't want to kind of opine on it. So I... I think that makes sense. I really don't doubt in his case that he would join Thomas. Look, Gorsuch, I mean, I've, I, I've been very critical. I've, I've been more critical of Gorsuch than probably like 95% of like my fellow Federal Society members. I mean, it's not it's not just the Bostock case. He's had, a, he's had a number of very bad decisions from my perspective. He had the McGirt versus Oklahoma case where he said the eastern third of Oklahoma is not a state. He had this ridiculous case, his concurrence in 2018 
Sessions versus Demaya, declaring unconstitutionally void for vagueness this immigration deport deportation provision. It was a it was a total fluff libertarian opinion. It was awful. So I I have not I have been pretty kind of out there criticizing him, but I do take some solace because if you look at some of the other areas where he has written on. I'm thinking of um, a Voting Rights Act case out of Texas in particular, and then there's also kind of the Bladensburg Cross case that, I, 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 that was kind of the Establishment Clause case out of Maryland. Those are the two instances like, that I can think of where he has joined the most hardline Clarence Thomas position, and he has done so on expressly stare decisis grounds. He does seem to take a very, very, very um, uh, really hard view, I guess, for lack of a better term, of Preston, where he basically agrees with Thomas, where when you when you are confronted between the text and precedent, the text has to win out, quite simply. Even Alito does not quite join, um, based on those two opinions I just mentioned, the Voting Rights Act case and the Plainsburg Cross case, even Alito, I don't think, joins Thomas and Gorsuch in taking that hard line of a view of stare decisis. So again, when we get back to a question of this bread and butter constitutional law, where it is that obvious that the case for the quote-unquote constitutional right to abortion is that flimsy, and I, if I had to guess, I, you know, I do think that Gorsuch probably agrees that that is a basic matter of, of, of reading the text. It is flimsy. When he's confronted between that and precedent, I, I, I do think he will choose the text. But you're, but you're totally right to flag this, by the way. Um, I, I, I do not think that Neil Gorsuch, I, I literally don't think that anyone besides Clarence Thomas is like, is like locked, gun, like set right in there, ready to overturn Roe versus Wade tomorrow. And that itself, obviously, is a huge problem for the conservative legal movement that we cannot say that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Can you give us a quick rundown of some of Amy Coney Barrett's arguments about the undue burden standard yesterday? Because I was really struck by this moment where um, the liberal activists were arguing to Amy Coney Barrett's face that being pregnant or having children creates this massive obstacle to a woman's career. Yeah, I mean, the irony of that obviously is is deeply transparent, right? I mean, she has, what, seven children, um, yeah. two, two adoptees, if, if I'm not mistaken there. That's right, I mean, yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, literally, if anyone knows that um, having children is is not necessarily an undue burden to having a professional career. I mean, there was some like Babylon B article from like September 2020 when she was nominated that resurfaced in my group chats yesterday. It, I can't remember the exact title, but it, but it was like, Amy Coney Barrett has to have husband prepared dinners so that she can go back in the chambers to reverse Roe versus Wade or something like that. I mean, like, uh, I mean, like she, she, she knows it's better than anyone in the world. And honestly, this entire kind of progressive mantra that pregnancy is kind of like a, uh, you know, an insufferable barrier to kind of advancing. It's, it's just so distasteful, right. As a, as a kind of like a general like pathology, uh, or kind of like a general view of mankind, or as a case maybe in this case, womankind. And it's always kind of just struck me as kind of the most morally egregious or, 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 or flagrantly wrong way of the pro-abortion left viewing the abortion issue. Is this, is this notion that the unborn child and the woman are in, in, in a state of irreconcilable tension with one another. Like a parasitic I'm, 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 relationship. It's a parasitic, exactly. I'm like, what that is doing, uh, is whole constitutional law aside, it's like a basic matter of like a, a, of the teleology of mankind. What, what that is doing is it, is it is stripping femininity of its most beautiful gift to the world, of the most beautiful thing that womanhood and femininity can possibly do. So th that has always just struck me as pretty evil. Um, and you're totally right to pick up on that. Um, and it was a very telling exchange yesterday here. 
Amy Coney Barrett in particular, I, man, I, 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 I know, I feel like I know in her bones, she just knows that all of this is garbage, but she takes a somewhat middle ground view on Sarah Decisis. She's a very loyal Scalia clerk. She's, she's basically adopted his view of Sarah Decisis. Scalia, to his credit, of course, um, did call for Roe v. Overturn repeatedly. Um, but I, 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 do, I, I don't know. I do just worry about her. I mean, like Kavanaugh, like she has had a number of kind of troubling data points so far here, and she was not quite as aggressive as, as Kavanaugh at oral argument yesterday. So that's why I remain cynical that either she or Kavanaugh, perhaps more so she, might be amenable to the chief's uh, informal persuasions, if you will. But, you know, I guess we'll see. Hey, Josh, if this deeply cynical, almost depressing podcast is correct, then uh, we could end up with a decision that doesn't throw out Roe. And if that does happen, there's going to be recriminations, especially on the right, right? Because uh, younger conservatives right now have grown impatient. They're tired of waiting. Uh, They've watched this very sluggish, very gradual process of trying to get these conservative justices on the court. And then, you know, we're still in a position where Roberts could go the wrong way. Kavanaugh could go the wrong way. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, kind of ominous noises made towards the Federalist Society, like you'd better get it right this time. Or we're going to look somewhere else. Uh, and, and I know that you're one of these conservatives who's, you know, at least a little bit skeptical. Uh, the problem is there's nothing else there institutionally at the moment. Right. We don't really have any other channel, any other venue for lawyers, jurists, justices to get people onto the Supreme Court. Uh, so I wonder how much of this is is just noise. And I guess I'm wondering uh, if Roe does not get struck down in the spring, uh, what happens? Yeah, man. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I've had so many informal conversations with people about this exact question. It's true that there is nothing kind of formally in the works right now. What I can tell you is that a lot of us are are, are, are actively talking about what comes next if, if this does not go the correct way. And Look, I mean, when you have people like like Ed Meese, um, Ed Meese is obviously kind of one of the original originalists. Nineteen eighty, he he wrote that Washington Post op-ed saying that it, that, it, that it comes down to this: I mean, the conservative legal movement will have failed if this does not go the right way. Ed Whelan has been saying that over and over again. Ed Whelan, of course, um, you know, friend of mine, but we've debated a lot of this stuff quite publicly and, and, and repeatedly. He basically says the exact same thing here. When you have so many kind of conservative legal movement elders arriving at the same conclusion. I do think that everyone intuits that this is the case. So what the exact form of what kind of like new rival organization or something that might come next, what it looks like, I can't tell you. I I, I can promise you that these conversations are happening. Um, I I, I am a part of some of them. I, I, I wear a lot of hats in my career. So it's like a little unclear as to exactly what role that I I could take if a new organization is started. But clearly, if Roe is not overturned here, something has to give. Now, here's the here's the key question. The key, the, the, well, there's a lot of key questions. But the big thing that gets brought up when I have a lot of these conversations is, what is the difference between conservative legal movement, Inc., by which we generally mean the Federal Society, we really kind of probably also mean parts of kind of the Heritage Foundation, judicial noms apparatus, and some like-minded orgs, Judicial Crisis Network, maybe. What's the difference between that and originalism, Inc.? In my mind, they're somewhat inextricable. Um, but a lot of people try to argue that they actually are quite distinct and that the problem with the former is more just vetting for courage, vetting for willingness to throw up bad precedent, do the right thing. But I'm happy you raised the Bostock case by Justice Gorsuch because it was the Bostock case in particular that I think really red-pilled me and a lot of others 
on the notion that, no, it actually isn't just vetting for courage here. There is something wrong with this overtly, over-the-top, morality-stripping, positivist uh, encapsulation, distillation of originalism, where even kind of someone who was trained in the natural law under John Finnis, like Neil Gorsuch was, on kind of a bread-and-butter kind of moral case, of the, like the transgender issue in, the, in Title VII in Bostock, arrives at the conclusion he did. So... We're, this is going to have to get teed out um, if uh, if Dobbs does go the wrong way and what a new rival org would look like. Here's the thing that I will say in the Federal Society's defense, and I'm literally a card-carrying Federal Society member. I do a lot of Fed Sock Talks. It is a wonderful network, okay? Like, I, I have made so many amazing professional acquaintances, and I, I have a lot to be grateful for. But at the end of the day, if in, all of that is, like, totally, like, back burner, like, who the, who the hell cares if we're not getting the results that we care about? Um, so something uh, I can all but assure you that if this case goes the wrong way, there will be at least one or two new kind of rival outfits that will be trying to kind of get in the judicial noms game. will be trying to kind of train the next generation of law students, young lawyers to do something different. I just can't tell you exactly what shape that will look like. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.